Canadian Export Challenge and the Startup Canada Awards are coming to a city near you. Entrepreneurs in Vancouver, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Mississauga, Montreal, and Fredericton have the opportunity for a full-day entrepreneurial experience. In the morning and afternoon, attend your one-day global accelerator where you will connect to Canada's entire trade, export, and growth ecosystem. Accepted entrepreneurs have the chance to pitch to win $25,000 in cash and up to an additional $100,000 in in-kind scaling support. In the evening, celebrate the winners of the 2019 Startup Canada Awards who are driving innovation and growing the economy in your region. Register for the Canadian Export Challenge at startupcan.ca forward slash CXC and get your tickets to your local award ceremony at startupaward.ca. Your insurance needs are as unique as the work you do and the industry you're in. Having the right protection in place is just the start. There's so much you can do to mitigate risks to your business for today and as you grow. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools to help you protect your operations. Visit SovereignInsurance.ca to learn more. I landed a contract in Italy, but I need five freelancers to make it happen. I said, sure, let's chat over coffee. With Export Development Canada, risk doesn't stop you. EDC, take on the world. give you a first-hand glimpse into the future of Canadian business, it's Rivers Corbett on the Startup Canada podcast. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. On this show, we connect you with the most innovative and entrepreneurial movers, shakers, and change makers across Canada. With day-in-the-life stories and in-their-shoes experiences, we dive into the true grit of running startup and scale-up companies and those driving the entrepreneurial movement. The Startup Canada podcast show is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs don't forget to subscribe to the show on itunes google play music and wherever else you listen to podcasts really excited to bring to you something special that i've been working with and that's a community a new community where we're engaging online with entrepreneurs from around the planet and i invite you to join me all you have to do is go to the link www.headspacefe.com where amazing conversations are happening with entrepreneurs. All right, buckle up, everybody. It's the Startup Canada podcast show. We're at Planet Hatch uh, in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And thank you guys at Planet Hatch for allowing me to uh, to be part of the, the atmosphere here. But we're just excited to have on the show today the 2018 winner of the Startup Canada Women Entrepreneur Award, a fearless female leader who is absolutely dominating a primarily male industry. And by the way, the script writers emphasize 
size, fearless, and dominating. So, Aaron, you got to come through with this. A few years ago, Aaron Stevenson was having a discussion about a challenge people in the construction industry were facing. How do they make their equipment work for them in the downtime? Well, within weeks, Dozer was born. Cool name. Aaron is the co-founder and chief operating officer at the Kitchener-based company, which some people refer to as the Airbnb of construction equipment. And after over a decade of working as an advisor and strategic partner to business leaders in both technology and construction, Aaron is at the forefront of the intersection of these two industries and has become a spearhead in the disruption of the heavy equipment market. At Dozer, Aaron is responsible for leading the execution of the organization's business strategy and marketing efforts. She oversees global marketing with a focus on the organization's growth strategy and reinforcing Dozer's position as the largest digital marketplace for heavy equipment. I love Canadian entrepreneurs. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss Aaron's advocacy for women in the technology and construction arenas and exploring how a sharing economy is opening doors for these industries to change. Aaron, was that all correct? Nice. I think you got it. It's those great writers, but uh, I I, uh, so appreciate you giving me your time today. I know you're a busy woman and uh, let's uh, let's dive right into it. Okay. So first of all, tell me about that conversation because that's, it's the coffee table. It's the coffee cafe conversation about this is a problem. This is a problem. Can you, can you take us back to that, that time when this was what was happening in that conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I actually uh, came from the construction industry. We had a family business that was in the landscape construction arena, and it was a problem that we had with our own equipment in that business. Uh, we had uh, equipment that was sitting idle uh, for six or seven months of the year. Uh, we had a winter portion of our business that was growing faster than the summer portion, and it left us with excess capacity that we didn't quite know what to do with. So we were going through some planning processes and trying to figure out, you know, what's the best solution for this? And there really wasn't anything out there on the market at that point in time that would solve this problem for us. Um, And we knew this was a problem that others had as well, but it was really about our own uh, issues at that moment. And so it was actually when we, um, as a family, had gone away on vacation we went to Florida and we rented a beach house through um, the sharing economy. And Mm -hmm. we were talking about how amazing that was, how much more affordable it made it for us to, you know, stay in a beach house, um, to own a beach house on the flip side of that and how it was really a win-win for everybody that was involved. And then, you know, it was this light bulb moment that went off and we thought, well, you know, why aren't we talking about this with our construction assets as well? They're, you know, hugely expensive pieces of equipment. Um, They're sitting idle for big chunks of time, um, not to mention in between projects as well as off season. So why can't we do this? And so we thought about it and we realized, you know, this is a really viable solution and we're the right people to bring this to market. And so we went for it. And so what was the first, uh, within weeks, Dozer was born. So what was was the first iteration of Dozer? What did it look like? The first iteration, really, we used our own fleet uh, of equipment to get that started. And so we were, you know, renting equipment um, between people within our own 
local network uh, that we had from working in the industry for so long. Um, so that's where it got kickstarted. And we did focus groups and things with some of these individuals in our network to understand, like, is this solution going to work for you? Would you actually use it if you didn't know us? And we got some really good and valuable information. And then we continued to build and iterate from there in ways that were going to help us scale and move beyond just our own personal network and into contractors across the country. And what were some of those uh, those lessons that you learned that maybe you didn't expect? I think some of the lessons we learned, the key lesson was really around trust, that if people are going to um, put their equipment, you know, it's worth a quarter of a million dollars and they're going to lend it out to somebody else, um, they need to have trust in Dozer and trust in the people within our network that their equipment's going to be um, handled well and then it's going to stay safe. And so that actually led us um, down the path of making sure that we could build that trust through a variety of measures. Uh, part of that is vetting people that come into the marketplace. Right. Part of that is, you know, um, contracts and things like that that are in place. But that really led us down the path of um, looking for an insurance product mm -hmm. that would cover our lenders in the event that something did happen. Right. Um, and so we were able to build that and add that as a core uh, program on our platform. So you were down in Florida on a beach house, in a beach house with your family. When you say we started it, did your family uh, dive in with you or were you the, 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 the leader and you brought in other team members? Uh, where there's three co-founders. Yes. Uh, so it's myself and Kevin Forstell and his brother, Tim Forstell, and we all work together in that construction business as well. And we all happen to vacation together. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. So who's the CEO? Kevin Forstell is the CEO. Okay. So how did the three you've decided as to uh, who should be the CEO, who should be the COO, and the other gentleman, what is, what's his role? Tim Forstell, he's the chief client officer. He manages all of our sales and execution uh, and customer relations. So I'm all about the business being a team sport, particularly in the beginning. It's about getting people into the right role, not necessarily the right title. And so how did you three come together to say, okay, this is where I'm going to focus uh, in the, on the executive team? That's a good question. We actually spent quite a long time, I would say at least the first year that we were operating as a company without titles, without clearly defined roles. We just um, did what we were good at. We did what needed to be done. And we kind of fell into place from there. Um, and the roles evolved over time based on what our you know, shared skills were, what we were interested in, and what really needed to happen at the company. So it was only after probably a year after launching that we realized, okay, we started to bring in other team members and sure. we probably need to start formalizing this a little bit more. Um, and that's when we defined what our roles were actually going to be. And how do you operate now as an executive team? Do you own that space of where, where you're the, uh, you know, in charge of the marketing and the operations and uh, Tim does the sales and they, they own that space and they really have veto over that space, but you, the other two have, um, have the ability to make input. How do you, how do you manage that relationship between the three of you? Yeah, it's very much like that. We definitely each own our own space, our own domain. Uh, we carry the expertise in that area. We bring forward 
our um, recommendations, our needs, uh, support requests, you name it, um, on behalf of our teams. And uh, ultimately, I think, you know, we, we probably do have veto rights, but we're quite collaborative. It's, yeah. um, it's not something I think that we've hit the situation before where we want to go one direction and everybody else is saying no and we do it anyway. Um, typically, it's about consensus building and we're able to, um, because I think of the expertise we have in our own respective areas, sort of sell the rest of the executive team on the um, direction we want to head. And everyone's quite supportive of each other in that respect. So, and, and, and I, you know, I, again, I think it's very important to have that conversation because I, uh, uh, I see a lot of startup entrepreneurs in particular say, okay, well, you be in charge of marketing because you got a Facebook page and you do this because of this. And what you folks did is just say, no, we're just going to hang out and just let it happen naturally until the point that we really have to start to identify those, uh, those roles. So I think that's a, that's a great lesson for our, for our audience. Um, I got to ask you this question with regards to your your model what's the furthest that a piece of equipment was 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 lent by one of your customers we've had them go quite significant distances um we've sent equipment from ontario down to florida we've sent um equipment between uh saskatchewan and ontario um so yeah those are probably the furthest distances that we've traveled that's pretty significant yeah, it is significant. And when you say we sent, so do you handle all the logistics of the of the shipping or does the, the shipping agents that you have partnered with deal directly with the lender and they figure it all out? So we organize all of the shipping and, and make sure that the equipment gets from point A to point B, but we don't actually ship the equipment ourselves. We do work with transportation companies and brokerages to actually move the equipment from point A to point B. Yeah, I love it. I really love it. So, how, so I'm, I'm thinking Airbnb. I'm thinking of uh, which I think is a great model. I love the whole sharing economy model. Anyway, it really is disrupting so many things. It's so cool. Um, how did you start to you, you you tested the model with your own equipment? You got a lot of the bugs ironed out, or at least to that point. How do you how do you then start to to brand it? And I know trust was a factor in there. I'm more interested in the marketing piece. How did you connect? Connect with your potential clients who wanted to one lend and the other clients who one wanted to borrow. Mm-hmm. A great question. In the early days, it was a lot of word of mouth. We we had a, a low marketing budget and a large <laughs> portion of our growth was through organic uh, means, where people you know recognized the potential of this opportunity for their own businesses and they were sharing it with their um, their colleagues and their uh, peers at other organizations. The construction is actually quite a tight knit industry, um, full of friends and frenemies, I think, um, is how I would put it. So (laughs) yeah, so they will, uh, they shared it quite a bit and then, you know, there's, they are organized in their own right. So, you know, we looked for where can we find these individuals and it's, it's been, um, an iterative process as well as we sort of discover the best means to reach out to people, whether that's, you know, showing up where they are at things like mm-hmm. trade shows um, or whether that's um, through uh, industry associations or, you know, that's sort of the early days how we started. And then as we started to get more of a brand and we started to get our word out there, we were able to do more, um, I would say, traditional digital marketing where we can focus on search and social and um 
email campaigns and, and kind of get the word out that way. Okay, so the, you got to be awfully proud of the name Dozer. Yeah. <laughs> it really is cool. And so did you, did, is there, a, I mean, the obvious story behind it is heavy equipment and so on, but give us a story about if you had to, uh, maybe you didn't have to, was it on, was it available uh, on the, you know, the dot com or I don't know what your URL is, but uh, was it easy to get access to the identity of, of that for online, uh, online marketing? Yeah, it was available for uh, Crazy. for the URL, which is amazing, and uh, certainly I think factored into our decision. But really, we loved the name because it's sort of a, a double entendre, right? There's obviously Dozer being the sort of most iconic piece of construction equipment yes. that we could think of. Yes. Um, but then there's also sort of this this idea of like your equipment dozing and, you know, sort ah, of talking off, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, don't let that happen, you know. Make sure you're, you're putting your equipment to work and don't let it doze That's freaking off. brilliant. I didn't see that part. I love it. I yeah. love it. I love it. Um, when you start it and when you continue, obviously you're, you're still continuing on. Um, did you get a lot of the equipment sellers, the manufacturers themselves, uh, push back at you and cause some, some, um, what you call them frenemy type of activity? Mm-hmm. We definitely had a lot that in the early days were, um, sort of keeping us at arm's length, I think. They were definitely very curious. They can see some major shifts and changes that are happening in the industry that they're trying to prepare their businesses for. And they were trying to figure out how do we work with Dozer, around Dozer, through Dozer? What does that look like for us? And so there's a lot of conversations with them around that. But our perspective was and always has been and still is to this day that it doesn't need to be a frenemy type of situation. There is more than enough business to go around for everyone. And so we actually um, work to partner with a lot of the equipment dealerships and OEMs and bring them into the fold of the platform. And the core reason for that was so that our customers can come to us and see everything they need in one place. They don't have to make 15 phone calls to their local dealer, to the Mm. OEM, come to us for the peer-to-peer Um, aspect, they can come to us and see everything and they can get pricing and comparison shop across all avenues to uh, obtain their equipment. And so it kind of was a win-win for us and for our customers and for the dealership. And I, and I got to think, I mean, I'm, I'm making the comparison with the automobile industry and one of the ways in which they continue to make their money is through maintenance. So is there value add now because these, these equipments are being used more that actually there's more maintenance needs, the service needs? Yeah, absolutely. I think from the OEM's perspective, um, it does help uh, in many ways with their customers uh, being able to sell equipment more quickly because it sort of lowers the cost per operating hour for their customers because they know that they're going to be able to make revenue off it and use it more often. Um, It does put more hours on the equipment so they may be able to turn that equipment over more quickly. Um, And it makes it more affordable for them to turn the equipment over more quickly and actually keep their fleet newer um, and more up to date because, you know, they're, they're um, depreciating at the same rate, but they're actually like making that revenue so they can do that faster. Um, So yeah, there's, and there's all sorts of these sort of offshoots 
that we're seeing that are happening from this. So cool. that could be everything from, like you said, the, the maintenance industry that's maintaining this um, equipment that has sort of a boon that comes from that, the logistics and transportation industry that gets more business from moving equipment around. And then this whole concept of micro entrepreneurs as well, where it's people that maybe actually don't have anything to do with the construction industry, but they see the um, value and the benefit of purchasing equipment exclusively for renting it on the platform. Um, and so they're starting to get involved in the industry as well. I love it. So Aaron, our audience, I know is going through their head. Well, I think, I think I know, uh, but they're saying, Oh my gosh. Okay. So how can I take this cool model, which is an Airbnb model. And I get this other stuff there. I, I, I saw someone the other day, um, in Halifax, they were doing a presentation. They are matching venues like barns and beaches and cottages with bands who want a venue to, uh, to just kind of play. And, and they sell the tickets to these concerts that these bands now do in these venues. And it's just this, again, the sharing economy. What other cool sharing economy examples have you seen in your journey because of, uh, because of your involvement with, uh, with Dozer? There's so many uh, that are, they continue to, the ideas continue to come up and they continue to build, you know, it's everything from car sharing to tool sharing to, um, that example you mentioned of venues um, with uh, uh, bands, I've seen similar venues with photographers, venues with filmmakers, um, anything where you have a large asset and a group of people that need that asset, there's a potential for the sharing economy to exist. Yeah, that's so. I think it really is just to the awakening, and we got to really uh, owe a lot of that to uh, to Airbnb. But and interesting in the Asian culture, from my understanding, anyway, it was always about sharing. That's naturally what you did, and so yeah. maybe just the North Americans are starting to wake up. Um, you, uh, by the way, congratulations on the national award that you received from Startup Canada for uh, Woman Entrepreneur of the Year. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, it's very cool. And aren't those trophies? Don't they? Don't they? Aren't they just a great weight? They're just awesome. <laughs> They're awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in your experience, uh, in uh, in as a woman entrepreneur and supporting women entrepreneurships and, and so on, have, do you think there's a sy systemic discrimination in the process of uh, of starting? Now, particularly maybe as it relates to male-dominated industries like construction? Yeah, I think that there is. Um, definitely on systemic. I don't think it's necessarily overt uh, any longer. But, you know, the, the data and the research shows us that women continue to get less funding, um, even though their companies often are more mm -hmm. successful are. Um, in the end. So I think that the numbers speak volumes and telling us that that's still uh still out there yeah it's in it it's it's crazy because you're right as an investor as an investor if if that stat is there if that metric is there why argue with it and not put you know why not put more money and funding into something that has a higher probability of success it blows me away so how do we begin to to change that mindset or do we even have to bother i mean when you, when you look at organizations like sheo uh they're just saying well screw it i'm, I'm just gonna go <laughs> organize a, an amazing group of women and we're gonna figure this thing out and you bonehead guys can go over there and keep losing money yeah, I, I mean, I love that concept of women supporting women. And um, I think that's amazing. I think we should see more of that and, and continue down that path. But when it comes to, you know, the male led um, venture capital, you know, groups, I think 
the the sense that I get is everyone sort of they they understand the data they see that and and they're not arguing that but they all think oh that's not me that's yes. somebody else yeah. right so they don't actually recognize how their own bias is playing into that and that comes from everything mm. you know it's it, it really is a complex issue it's everything from they look for um, companies uh, led by um, uh, entrepreneurs that come from certain schools, certain backgrounds, certain, uh, maybe they're serial entrepreneurs and they've had, uh, wins in the past. And so what that does is if, okay, if you're saying, I only want to invest in startups led by people that have a a computer science degree from these particular schools, but we know that in those, those degree programs in those schools, it's already a very small percentage of women in them then right. you're automatically limiting your talent pool. Right. So I think they need to go back to basics and say, okay, well, how can I, like, what do I actually really need to evaluate a successful company rather than just past trends of history? What do I really think makes a successful entrepreneur and target those um, individuals and mm-hmm. try and get rid of some of those, those biases that they may not recognize they even have? As an executive with Dozer, um, what do you say to uh, startup executives who feel, I mean, you're, you're working in a, a very interesting market with all kinds of, I'm going to call it um, intricacies, details, uh, you know, if there's a bolt missing, it can screw up an entire operation. Do you dig deep and understand how each piece of equipment works in what it is that you do? Or do you step away and say, no, I'm good at what I do. And I'm going to bring in people who are good at what they do to look after that stuff. How do you, how do you and your team um, uh, approach the intricacies of detail? I think you have to know what level of detail is important. Um, you have to evaluate that. And if there's a level of detail that is going to make or break your business, you better know it inside and out. Right. Right. Great. Um, if there's something that, uh, especially early on, I should say, you know, when you're a small team and, and you really maybe don't have the funds to outsource some of these things, or, um, you don't have the, the headcount to bring the expertise in house and you better learn it pretty quickly. Um, but if there's things that, you know, it's information that is a little bit more rote, um, it's readily available. It's not something that is going to set you apart as, um, you know, a leading player in the space. Then that's something that probably you can bring others in to help you with. I bet you get asked to speak a lot. Yeah, from time to time. Yeah, so what do you speak about when you're on the stage? Um, a lot about uh, women in technology, a lot about my experience as an entrepreneur, as a female entrepreneur. Um, that's sort of my my niche area. And what do you talk about? What do I talk about? Yeah, when you're on stage and they say, they say, Aaron, you can have... You can have, uh, you're, you're on the stage, it's your topic. What's your favorite topic to talk about in the topic you just talked about? <laughs> to follow that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it changes depending on the audience and right. the fair. nature of, you know, what um, what the event actually is. So I definitely try and tailor my, my topic to the event that um, I'm attending. Um, something like, you know, what's on my mind now um, so if I was, you know, getting up and speaking in front of people today and I had the floor to say whatever I wanted, um, it would likely be around uh, being an additive 
player to the startup ecosystem. And that goes back to, um, you know, my passion for women in tech and, and diversity. We talk often about um, company corporate culture. And when you hire for culture, you're not necessarily hiring for people that fit into your culture. You're hiring for people that are additive to your culture. And I think the same thing goes for startups um, and their own ecosystem. So be an additive player into the startup ecosystem. So instead of saying, I'm going to try and fit the model and I'm going to pull talent from other companies in the area and I'm going to work within the confines of what I'm given as far as, you know, um, who the players are and who I can hire and, and what have you. Be an additive player. We really believe in you know, thinking outside the box, bringing talent into the organization that may be not as obvious of a fit um, for other organizations and developing them and helping them grow and then move on um, to other roles within uh, the startup ecosystem and actually helping to build that pipeline for everybody. Um, I think that really will help with diversity as well because you're thinking about bringing in women, uh, you know, minorities, whatever that may be, that are going to uh, add to the ecosystem and not just maintain what we already have. How have you, uh, you're a national winner with Startup Canada. How have you, uh, how has Startup Canada become or is still part of your, uh, your journey as an entrepreneur? Well, uh, it's always, Um, so flattering and so amazing to be recognized for something that you're not only working on, but you're absolutely passionate about and and giving it your all. Um, There's really no better compliment that can be had. And so I think the support that Startup Canada has given me um, and and women entrepreneurs as well in in calling out this particular um, Women Entrepreneur Award has been phenomenal. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, Erin, you you talked about the the approach to culture your approach to culture and how you add to it and so on is this is this book knowledge or is this just in the uh, in the trenches knowledge that you've acquired over the past uh, years to uh, to bring to your own culture it's both i would say definitely um there's an element of it that's book knowledge but there's experiences that I've had in the trenches that have led to this. So, you know, I think when we first started, I subscribed to the idea that, you know, I want my um, employee base to reflect my customer base. And then, you know, I started to see where that was leading us, the path that was leading us down. And I realized, well, our customer base is not diverse. Right. So I, I actually don't know that that's doing us any favors to reflect our customer base because we're getting a singularity of thinking and a singularity of um, representation across the organization. And I definitely believe that having diverse thought um, and diverse experience is what allows us to be, you know, successful and, and accelerate um, as a company. So that meant that I had to take a step back from that and say, okay, well, if we're not going to reflect our customer base, what are we going to be? Who are we as a company? Um, And that's sort of what what led me down this path to being that additive um, part of the ecosystem. Does does being a a social 
having a social play of of giving back of of, of being you know the the proverbial good uh, corporate citizen does that play anywhere in your strategy and if it doesn't that's fine right now i mean you're you're where you're at uh but if it does how does that uh, how does that what does that look like yeah that's something we always try uh and do um i think we take small steps as an organization right now being uh, such a, a small startup still we probably don't have the capacity that some of these larger corporations sure. do to make a, a huge impact on um a given charity but we do definitely try and do that we've um organized food drives uh, for the local food bank uh with you know quite re- as recently as thanksgiving actually um within our company um we have things like a diversity committee uh that we meet on a quarterly basis to try and make sure that we aren't impl- um carrying forward any systemic bias in how we hire and promote and treat our employees. Um, We absolutely think about how we're giving back to our own um, customer base as well. What can we do to make their lives easier and help them um, move their businesses forward? So that's Um, definitely a part of our value system as a company. Yeah, I think that's very cool. And and a point well taken. It doesn't have to be, this is the strategy. It can just be organic and you respond to where it feels to be appropriate given the culture that you've created in your your company. And I think organic growth is sometimes the best growth because it it involves so many different people. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad you reinforce that point where's uh, where's those are going to be uh, 24 months from now in your crystal ball my crystal ball if yes. only it was more crystal <laughs> uh, you Brilliant. Know. i love it yes <laughs> Yeah. No, it's a great question. I think, you know, we are continuing our growth. We really want to um, see uh, more expansion in the U.S. market. Um, And we really want to be that that resource of choice for our customers. When they think about equipment, we want them to think about Dozer first. Yeah, I love it. So... um... Where do you uh, where do you operate now? Where's your where the geography that you operate in? Uh, so our headquarters are in Kitchener, Ontario. Yep. And uh, we operate uh, in regions across Canada and the U.S. So primarily Northeast U.S., um, Ontario, Alberta. And of course, we're continuing to make connections all all in between there as well. Of course. Is there anybody that's uh, that's doing what you're doing in any other part of the world? Uh, yeah, there are absolutely some uh, other players um, in the U.S. primarily. Uh, not very many, often also early stage um, startups, but yep. uh, seeing this concept start to pick up steam. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I used to run a gourmet burger operation and, uh, you know, people say, I was going to do that. I was going to do that. And look at all your competitors and so on. And it really comes down to execution and the special sauce behind the ex- execution. And, uh, you know, I, I know you're smart enough and your team's smart enough to understand you've got to always be, be looking at innovation and customer relationships and so on. And that, uh, that's ultimately what's going to keep your, your, organization moving forward i'm i'm just one so impressed i think it's a really cool thing i love the name i really do and um uh so if you're gonna go back to that beach house down in florida where was it in florida the beach house 
It was this little island called Captiva. It's just off Sanibel. Um, Have you been back there since? Yeah, we have. We we try to go every year. We haven't <laughs> we haven't gone much since we started Dozer. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so let's presume you do go back to, uh, to that to that day or that time when you said, "Oh, that'd be cool to do this." What would you have changed? What's one or two things that you would have changed on your journey to where you are today from that initial discussion or, or around the table? I'll presume it was on a beach with lobster and beer and wine around you. But, uh, <laughs> what uh, what would you have? What are some some fundamental changes you would have made and I know there's got to be at least a couple you know what the big thing would be like just go for it but move faster Mm. you know I think that's something that we've learned along the way and we've had some really great mentors that have um, helped reinforce this idea with us and it's you know about taking risks moving quickly and don't be afraid to fail Um, you know making a decision quickly is better than not making a decision all at all and failing is just a learning opportunity that you can use along your journey. Um, it's not an end point. Love so it. I think that would be what I would tell myself is like, go for it, do it, but move fast, like run. Yeah. Very cool. I was watching a uh, speech that Denzel Washington was doing in front of a congregation. That's, that's my big, uh, one of my big goals is that I get, I get automatically become a doctor at a university and do a speech about my career. And so he was doing <laughs> one of, one of those speeches and he says, fail but fail big dive in and make her happen because it's still failure at the end of the day so fail big and i always thought that was cool so that's interesting that you you close this Mm -hmm. great conversation with with that with the one more question what's the one thought you want to give us uh to the women entrepreneurs that are on the conversation entrepreneurs in general uh what's the the one piece of of advice you say this is uh this is uh, let's say, who's your mentor or what's a favorite book that you like? Oh, goodness. That was like three questions in one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you're in charge of operations. You should be able to keep up, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I think when it comes to um, women entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in general, like if you have an idea and you're sitting on it and you're sort of thinking, do I go for it? you know, what, what should I do? I mean, my advice would be go for it, yeah. you know, just jump in feet first, um, and do it. You won't regret it. It's the most rewarding experience. I think that you can ever have is building something from the ground up and building something that's yours. Um, so whether you succeed or whether you fail, you'll learn something along the way and, and you won't regret it. Ah, wonderful stuff. Aaron, thanks so much for being on the uh, Startup Canada podcast today. How can people find out, one, uh, what where, where's the, the website for, for Dozer? The other thing, how do they hang out with you? Great. So uh, they can learn more about Dozer on our website. It's uh, www.dozer.com. That's D-O-Z-R.com. And um, they can find me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect with any entrepreneurs, uh, women entrepreneurs. I love to support and, um, you know, chat, share ideas, mentor, whatever that looks like for that uh, person. So please reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'd be happy to connect. And one last question. <laughs> Sorry, I just find this so interesting because there's a cultural play here between Americans and Canadians. When you're saying the word dozer and spelling it to your American colleagues and clients, do you say D-O-Z-R? 
Absolutely. <laughs> know your audience. Know your audience. <laughs> your language. <laughs> You're brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for uh, for being on the Startup Canada podcast show. Keep doing your magic, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep our eye on what you're doing. And I look forward to the opportunity of shaking your hand and having a conversation face to face. Thanks so That's much. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Rivers. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Canada podcast, a show dedicated to unlocking the entrepreneurial potential of every entrepreneur with access to inspiring stories and tangible lessons to help you run your business. Want access to resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca for the latest startup community news and upcoming events like our popular hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. Till next week, I'm Rivers Corbett leaving you with a sneak peek of next week's episode. Hi, this is Sonia DiMalo. Hi, this is Brian Hogan. Hello, this is Kelly Gugliere. And you are listening to the Startup Canada podcast. It seems like we're we're trying to go back to the days of when we were kids. I mean, where the natural curiosity was there. And, and I like to thread back this in this, uh, you know, this sense of the entrepreneur. Which, how can you have a competitive advantage? And you can have a competitive advantage by having the best team in your industry or whatever. And by encouraging this, this, this curiosity. How do you get back to that sense of embracing curiosity? Not as it relates to an engineering curiosity, but as it relates to a soft skills engineering for 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 not big companies i'm talking about the ones that are up and coming who said i need to be competitive i I, when i think listening to um this these these ideas of uh exhibiting emotional intelligence and being curious i was thinking of uh politics Mm -hmm. now you know i'm an entrepreneur i'm trying to start my business uh i i want everybody to be a client and suddenly i'm dealing with somebody who has uh political opinions that are diverse than to mine and uh, now do I jump in with my opinions and or do I listen thoughtfully ask questions and find where the common ground is and uh, it could be that we vote differently but there might be other values that are there that allow us to have a relationship so that's important it is it is somebody else want to touch on that point for the you know the entrepreneur piece Mm-hmm. Well, to cultivate um, curiosity, this is Sonia, um, cultivating curiosity is very, very uh, an important skill set, but it also needs daily practice. So it, it can't mm. be just, oh, you know, yeah, I'm going to be curious. Um, <laughs> yeah, so what, what I, you know, I teach um, seven communication behaviors. One of them is is curiosity or is asking how to ask the questions. And um, I have people go through and actually uh, create an action plan. And, and they, if they choose ask or the curiosity piece, we work more in depth. And so it really is about um, having daily or weekly reflections or action plan toward that. Sometimes people think, oh, well, soft skills, we're born with that. We're human. We have all mm-hmm. these skill sets. Mm-hmm. But it's just like any other skill. If I'm going to, if I've never played golf and I'm going to start playing golf, well, and I want to be serious about it, I'm going to have goals and I'm going to have to practice and I'm going to have to follow up on my prog- progress and see how I'm doing. It's the same with soft skills and curiosity is one of them. So if that's a focus, then, um, you know, I would, the way I help people do it is write down questions. I call them the magic questions because they're questions that be asked in any situation. 
Right. Uh, you know, the, the simple ones is how's your day or how are you? Uh, but those sometimes don't elicit authentic responses. So we mm-hmm. want to try to find questions that we can ask, like, um, you know, what, what happened to you today that surprised you or interested you? Um, some questions that you can ask anybody anytime that, um, that you can write down, practice, and then throw out um, as, as it, you could be with strangers, it could be with your team, it could be with clients. And so you have to practice them in your own words, words that are easy for you to say that you can remember and not somebody else's questions. 